country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hi everyone, this is Jackie Baker coming to you from Murdoch University. Today's topic, big business in Indonesia. And by that, I mean the conglomerates. Conglomerates are corporations. That is, they are a family of companies that are supposed to operate independently of each other and they report back to a kind of parent company. Conglomerates are the main players in the Indonesian economy and they control core sectors like agribusiness, banking, property, telecommunications. They're often founded and built through multiple generations of a single, often ethnic Chinese, family. Indonesia's biggest conglomerates are household names, right? They're Sinar Mas Group or Royal Golden Eagle or Lippo Group, Salim Group. These owners are well known. Their movements are tracked by newspapers. Everybody knows and talks about these people. And they have a measurable impact on the daily lives of Indonesians, from the soap Indonesians use to wash their dishes to the phone credit they use to top up, even to the hospitals they attend or the schools. Over the past two decades, Indonesia's biggest conglomerates have emerged not just as domestic oligarchs, but increasingly regional players. And this has come about through a series of acquisitions and joint ventures. But that expansion has also been supported by the regional economic architecture provided by ASEAN. To help us understand how Indonesian big business have transformed Indonesia and are now reshaping our region, is my guest, Faris Al-Fadhat, Senior Lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Muhammadiyah University, Yogyakarta. Faris is the author of The Rise of International Capital, Indonesian Conglomerates in ASEAN, and his new book, Expansi Capital, was published this year by Compass Publishing. Welcome to Talking Indonesia, Faris. Uh, hello, Jackie. Thank you very much for having me on this uh, podcast. Okay, so I guess we need to go back to basics. And we are really used to talking about the private sector in kind of really positive terms, right? The private sector is privately owned. It's a free space. It's a competitive space. It responds to supply and demand. Is this a good way of understanding the role and influence of conglomerates in Indonesia? Uh, well, for some people who believe in a free market or liberalism, uh, possibly this is the good way. But in fact, uh, in Indonesia, it's in contrary. Uh, the problem is in here is uh, there is no fair competition, actually, uh, because to understand the way of conglomerates operates in Indonesia is, I think, is best through the close relationship between business bureaucrats and political elites in that ways. Uh, there's one example in here. Uh, recently, one of the presidential candidates, Prabowo, mentioned during a big interview session the uh, uh, thousands of people in the forum, and he said that his business were not getting so much benefits for a couple of years because he's not in a power for more than a decade. That's very interesting for me because he's saying that in a publicly he's not getting so much benefits because he's not in power. So it reflects how close actually between business and politics 
now people, especially within the business uh, of elites, believe in that if they want to enhance their operations, diversification of business, it's absolutely need uh, closer to politics. That's why we see in Indonesia for the last couple of years, many businesses are joining politics, uh, not in a way of it focusing on business, but the hand in hand between business and, and politics. So back to your questions, if it's the good way, like liberal artifact uh, is the good way to understand Indonesian conglomerates operation, uh, my answer still no, uh, because actually we have to see the business in Indonesia in line between its business expansion and also its political influence. What do you mean by this relationship between politics and business? Are you saying, um, you know, that they pay bribes? Are you saying that they are more than a lobby group? Are you saying that they write laws in line with their own business needs? Or is it more complex than that? Can you give us a bit of a picture of how this relationship between business and politics works? All right. Uh, it's, it's quite complicated in that. Uh, because to see the close relationship between business and politics and bureaucracy, we need to go back like 50 years from now, uh, during 1970s. That's the period of a very important period of, of Indonesian development. Uh, 1970s mark the economic development in Indonesia, where the government at the time under President Suharto having a difficult decision whether to have a economic development with the free uh, speech, free politics, free engagement of politics, or they're really focusing on economic unsafe. Uh, uh, so the government at the time choose economic development with political stability. But the problem is at the time, the government has no economic support from the national budget and even from the business of private sector, government really need a support from business, which at a time, the lack of capital, lack of land, lack of resources. So to build that economic development, the government provides a concession, provides protection to the business, which at a time, not so big, like one big companies control like 10 or even like 20 uh, businesses. Uh, and through that close relationship, we see uh, the start of a close relationship between the government and, and business. So the government provides something for businesses in order to run business, in order to in, enhance uh, the expansion of domestic businesses to help the government uh, in many sectors. So that's the idea of how start the close relationship between business and Indonesia. And the second uh, illustration is that the personal connection between business and uh, political elites, because at the time the government, which really focusing on the central of Suharto as a central figure, he uh, tend to have his personal uh, network, couple of figures in the business from Chinese descent. So during this personal connection, Suharto used to give a concession. One example is that uh, the government need to expand on CPO production, for example. So in order to do that, the government asked a private sector to run a company on a CPO. 
and the government provide a land for that. But in order to secure that, the government also provides a regulation and political protection. So in a way that the government needs this sector and also private sector needs protection from the government. So start from that, we see how complicated uh, uh, for the last 50 years, the relationship. After the political reform, we see what happened, what you mentioned before, that uh, business uh, funding the election for governor, for even for presidential uh, candidate. So that's how the close relationship between uh, uh, politics, uh, especially political elites and the business sector. You talk about this kind of pivotal moment when the Indonesian state under Suharto had to decide whether it was going to have a free market or whether it was going to have more intervention in the market. The way you talk about it, it sort of sounds like a a quite a reasonable rationale. I mean, for many developing states, it wasn't possible to have that kind of free market. They really needed to have, you know, what was called a developmental state. And there were other examples of very well-functioning developmental states, so where this formula of state intervention in the economy was quite successful, like Japan or South Korea or any of the East Asian tigers. How come in Indonesia we didn't get that same outcome? That's interesting. Uh, If if we see the pattern of our economic uh, development, yes, it seems quite the same, but there was so much difference in that. One huge difference was that uh, during that period of 1970s and 1980s where Suharto and its uh, network of businesses uh, its close to him, we see how Suharto's government at the time really helping enhance his political power his personal family involved in business, uh, his political you know, network. So he tried to focus the power on his family and his personal networks. While for business also, we didn't see that happen in other countries like Japan and in Korea, where politics direct the business in order to support the economic development. While in Indonesia, the support of politics at a time through concession, political protection, uh, really support the accumulation of uh, accumulation of wealth uh, for this limited conglomerates. Uh, that's why, as a result of that, we see the concentration of accumulation uh, far above the economic development. The idea of economic development is to help the economic growth and also helping the employment and also uh, uh, people everywhere also benefits from that economic development. While in Indonesia, uh, we see a slowing of economic growth in grassroots, while the increase of economic wealth of the elites far faster. Like if you see the trend, for example, a big business getting so much revenue above 10%, 10, even 12% in a year, while people getting benefits from economic development like between three to five percent so there's a huge gap between who control who run the economy and who the people in the grassroots so that's what happened in indonesia that's why we didn't see the 
the same result uh, for our economic development compared to other countries. Even though if you're talking about the you know, inequality, we believe there are many inequalities in different countries, yes, but the way business is being handled in here is quite different. That's why through 1970s, 80s, and the late 1990s, we see the frustration of people, uh, uh, common people, uh, to our economy, which they believe in the in the end of 1990s, the Suharto's uh, elites, with his personal network of business elites, uh, control economy for the benefits of their own. So Indonesia's conglomerates have transformed significantly since the new order and since the Asian financial crisis, as you talked about earlier. And your unique argument is that they've undergone a process of internationalization. Can you give us an example of this process of internationalization and and what are the forms that internationalization has taken? Uh, Yes. Uh, To understand what uh, we uh, term as internationalization of capital, uh, there are two ways seeing this. First, there are companies that can investing in local, exporting abroad, or these companies investing in foreign countries while selling into local market. So this is we call a half internationalization because it's only able to invest in local, exporting, or investing overseas and selling locally. But there's a full internationalization of capital where companies are able to invest overseas and sell their products overseas. So this is a full internationalization of a capital. Uh, there is a strong example of this in Indonesia uh, is Salim Group, one of the diverse and sophisticated conglomerates in the country. So the example of Salim provides the first it's most of its capital really international because the operation of Salim's business in Indonesia really controlled by its capital in Hong Kong because it's, it's, a, it's a holding company. It's not in Indonesia. It's in Hong Kong-based company called First Pacific. So First Pacific control share in many countries, including in Indonesia. And second ways to see this is that how Salim expanding its business into Asia Pacific, especially in Southeast Asia. Uh, for example, Salim run one of its major companies or business of Salim is in food processing. Uh, everyone in Indonesia knows Indofood. Everyone eat instant noodles, for example, that's which produced by Indofood. So this is one of the largest food production and processing companies uh, in Southeast Asia, if it's not in Asia. So you see this Indofood is actually Indonesian companies were actually owned by Salim's international company in Hong Kong. And to link its business, it's quite interesting that Salim start to enhance, to enlarge its, its food processing and production companies into different countries in order to support its fruit sector. For example, in 2014, for example, Salim acquired or bought a company in, in Australia, Goodman Fielder, which produced many breads and daily uh, consumption uh, uh, product. Uh, and then after that, the company 
bought a, a huge share in the Philippine Roxas Holding. This, this is the second largest sugar company in the country. And third, he also linked its company with the Singaporean company. It's called CAF. It's located in Singapore, which also produces bread uh, daily consumption product. So we see that this is not happened before where previously Salim really focusing on domestic market uh, like true indoor food producing bread and everything else and selling to Indonesian market and exporting some of its product but now we see that uh, its indoor foods company tried to being linked into other companies in Southeast Asia and the Pacific this is the way of internationalization of capital where Salim gaining benefits not just from domestic market which used to happen before now the company really really focusing on overseas market shouldn't we just expect in a globalized economy that all big and competitive companies will ultimately internationalize and look for new markets isn't that just the way the evolution of capital isn't that just normal shouldn't we expect that to happen for good companies why is this a problem that's an interesting question Jackie yes if we see the development of capitalism not just in Indonesia or even in Southeast Asia we can't expect that's going to happen uh, eventually but the problem is, how that internationalization conducted or being carried out so that's that's the the interesting question because if we see the history of big companies in indonesia they try to develop and concentrate its operation and capital through political network not through economic competition fair competition and during this internationalization of capital where their business is also being expanded into foreign countries like in Singapore, uh, Philippines, Vietnam, and even in, in Australia. So we see that way of expansion also duplicating their expansion in Indonesia, which in a way that the expansion of capital also needs the political protection from other foreign governments. One example is that when I mention about Salim, its expansion in the Philippines is not true a normal like liberal ideas of free market where they try to acquire companies through a normal negotiation, etc. No, the way they expand is also need a political protection and networks within the Philippines government. We see here that the competition of economic expansion here is also a competition between political network where uh, the companies, the elites of companies also try to see how to suit uh, the negotiation of business and also getting help from the political elites in that country. And also that happened in uh, Indonesian big business when they also expand into different countries. So the problem is not that they were going to expand eventually as a nature of capitalism, but the way and how this internationalization is being carried out through political protection and networks. That is so interesting because 
you know, when you talk about Salim Group, for instance, I have to say that my children love um, like the Indo food, Indo me, right? And my whole life, my whole life, I grew up with Maggi or Maggi noodles, right? So we had like the beef or the chicken. And now my kids will go straight for the Indo food ones, which is, you know, these more spicy, kind of like drier noodles. So like the expansion of Salim Group's Indo food into Australia, you're suggesting was not just a matter of a good product that has has been able to compete against other products and get onto my local supermarket shelves, but you're saying that they use their political leverage to um, expand to these new markets. Yes, that's that's why I argue in my writing. Uh, there is an interesting story on that, uh, Jackie. When I studied in, in Murdoch in Perth, there's one event. At the time, I was the president of Indonesian Postgrad and Scholars Association. So I was quite close with Indonesian representative through Consul General in Perth. So there was one event, and the, the Congen, Consul General at the time, asked me, Ferris, uh, would you mind to represent you know, Indonesian students to attend this event? The event called Australian Business Gathering. So there are hundreds of big businesses of Australia attending in Perth, Western Australia. What's interesting at the time is that in that forum, there's only one uh, speaker, only one speaker. That speaker was Frankie, the younger brother-in-law of Anthony Salim, you know, the, the head of Salim Group. So Frankie at the time was the uh, director, executive of Indofood. So at the time, I was very interested on that event because how come this guy from Indonesia become a single speaker in Australian uh, business gathering? So and I learned from that forum how strong and how big Salim uh, in in Australia because. In order to support its Indofood, it's, it's really depend on wheat industry. And in order to support its business, Salim acquired and bought some land in Australia in order to produce its own wheat and export that wheat into Indonesia. And in order to have that also bigger, he bought companies, you know, uh, bread companies, food companies in Australia and being supported through its wheat producing companies so this is being being done uh, through its network it's not just an economic activities uh, per se it's, and that's why at the time i learned how strong uh, salim network in australia not just uh, that's it's trying to export the noodle or in the food that's which getting so much uh, you know uh, consumers but also how he runs business in Australia. Yeah, that's an amazing story, actually. And I guess it, it really connects well to the next question, which is like, how has the Indonesian government facilitated the internationalization of these domestic conglomerates? And I mean, you talked a little bit about that in your last, in your last anecdote about how the Comgen ushered you to the uh, event. But I guess the a bigger question is like, why has the state decided to direct its power towards the internationalization of these conglomerates? Like what's what's in it for the state and, and what are the effects on it when it does so? All right. It's a very important question. It's a link to how our politics being built. 
after the fall of Suharto in 1998. Briefly, that after that, uh, big businesses which used to rely on a single power of Suharto being distraught and being confused and with mix of uncertainty because they don't have any you know, strong patron. What happened at the time is that they tried to build their own patron, their own political engagement or directly involved into politics. One story is that when I asked during my interview with uh, the, some of the conglomerate circles, I asked why this particular uh, big business figure built its own political party. Interestingly, he answered that, you know what, big business annually, they have to spend billions of rupiah in order to support its business through you know, negotiation with the parliament, uh, providing uh, money uh, for political campaign and etc. So billion of rupiah annually. The question is how they can get effective way of, of influencing policy. So they come with the answer is how if we use that money, which actually normally being used to support the parliament or political campaign, take back that money to build to his or her own political party and use that money to consolidate its power to political party and use that political party to become his tool for political negotiation and etc. So this is the, the, the strong way of many big businesses influence into politics. And if we see, uh, back to your question, how come the government facilitated in, in, in which way? Short answer is that because big businesses in Indonesia right now is not just businesses, they are political elites as well. If we see now, for example, almost uh, all big political parties in Indonesia controlled by big businesses or linked to businesses. That's why it's, it's, it's easy to see how the policy of the government really in order to facilitate the operation of business. The second ways of government facilitate the expansion of capital into international market is that use that policy in open into a, a free market in, in the region. So the government really support the integration of economic market in Southeast Asia in order to facilitate the free trade to two sectors very important, free trade and the free flow of investment. Even though later on we see the competition uh, where, for example, in one sector, the government really tried to protect the market. And that's also happened in different countries like in, in Thailand or the Philippines. But the answer to that protectionist policy is not, it's not because the government having ideas of national economy. No, my opinion is that because the competition among capitalist classes in a way that they try to protect its own domination into a particular sector of business from the uh, uh, competition from other big business from different countries. So that's my take, Jackie. 
Okay, that leads me to my next question because, I mean, if there's one sort of signature uh, move of the Jokowi administration and of the president himself, it is for neoliberalisation, right? And if you look at some of his big bills, like his most controversial bills, like the omnibus law or even the health laws recently passed, they have all ushered the neoliberalisation of the Indonesian economy. And that means facilitating foreign investment and foreign actors to start working in core sectors of the economy. Why would conglomerates that have had such a coddled domestic existence and who have now expanded into the state in order to influence the state, why would they support these kinds of bills? Do they work in their interests or do they work against their interests? Uh, I have to state uh, from the start that Jokowi's economic policy is not nationalist. It's really neoliberal-oriented market policy. So even though people see his policy, or, you know, his speech, or in many occasions, he tried to send a gesture of protectionist policy that we have to buy our own product and etc. and etc. So in my opinion, that's all. Just, that's just a slogan of political campaign which actually his policy is very much neoliberal and market-oriented policy. The, the new bill is actually uh, benefits big businesses in two ways. First, the easiness of business, while the government tried to facilitate the way of doing business uh, become more easier for a business sector and business atmosphere, the government also tried to control free, organized labor and also signaling the authoritarian tendencies of its policy. So in a way that this bill tried to facilitate business as much as the government can, while also trying to limit the political destruction of the business have been complained for so many years. The second, this bill also served the conglomerate's interests because the bill provides a foreign investment and capital growth in Indonesia. Because the problem of the government economic growth and business uh, expansion in Indonesia is that the investment from overseas, the more investment comes to the country, the more beneficial for businesses and conglomerates because they will have, you know, merger, acquisition, and also joint ventures through different sectors. So, yes, the bill will absolutely uh, provide the government to enhance the economic growth while also serve the interests of big business. For all this discussion on internationalization. I wonder if we're not sort of overstating the level of internationalization by Indonesian um, conglomerates. You know, for instance, if we look at all the sort of major comparative indices, for instance, on outbound foreign investment or merchant acquisitions or supply chains, um, Indonesian capital is arguably one of the least internationalized in the region, especially, for instance, compared against Malaysia or Thailand. How does that sit with your argument that Indonesian capital, okay, it's internationalizing, but it's come from an incredibly low base? Is that how you would read it? Uh, yes. Um, 
But there are two ways in, in addressing these issues. First, we have to see that Indonesian businesses used to be reluctant on free market, on free opening Indonesian market, because for many, many years, they have been benefited through domestic market. Indonesia is the largest market in Southeast Asia where they produce something in here and they sell the products in Indonesian market. They're already getting more benefits compared to other businesses in Southeast Asia. So they really love domestic market previously. So this is the nature of Indonesian big business from 70s, 80s until the late 90s. Now it's changing. That's why if you mentioned that Indonesian outbound foreign investment, the least compared to Malaysia or even far under Singapore uh, and even from the uh, uh, Thailand and the Philippines. Yes, but we have to see from this picture how Indonesian businesses previously, they were really reluctant. For example, in 1990s, early 1990s, you know, other countries in Southeast Asia already uh, have an idea of uh, ASEAN free uh, trade area. Uh, after, in order to support the free flow of trade in the, in the region. At the time, Indonesian businesses quite reluctant because if Indonesia government opened its markets, it will have a competition in, into Indonesian market and it absolutely will harm the domination of robots. And second ways to, to address this issue is that uh, the number of that you mentioned, uh, the, the outbound for investment that's, uh, you know, uh, figuring the number of capital that owned by, you know, Indonesian uh, businesses that use, being used to expand into foreign countries is actually, uh, doesn't mean that Indonesia is not internationalized and doesn't mean that Indonesia is less international than others because OFDI does not cover the whole capital transaction. That's only measuring the capital owned by Indonesian companies in Indonesia, uh, which based in Indonesia, uh, use that money to expand into different market. While for the last two decades, many Indonesian businesses relocated their capital into different countries, like Salim moved its capital into Hong Kong. And uh, Golden Royal Eagle moved its office into Singapore and many other companies moved its base into different countries and that's not entirely captured by outbound foreign investment because those companies registered in different countries so it's it means that the capital is not being counted as you know activities uh, of Indonesian foreign investment into different countries because that's capital owned, you know, uh, located in Hong Kong, Singapore, and even in Virgin Island. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So, because it's often said actually that um, a lot of Indonesian FDI is is Indonesian conglomerates kind of reinvesting back in Indonesia. Yeah, bringing it back in. No, yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. So my final question. I mean, we we were right in the heat of the presidential campaign. And as you pointed out in your first response to my question, even Prabowo is talking about the importance of having a stake in politics for business. This is a presidential campaign where the interests of business are front and centre. How do you see the effects of the internationalization of Indonesian capital on Indonesian politics and on the current 2024 presidential election? 
Oh, it's an interesting question. The internationalization of capital is inevitable. So big companies already expanded into different countries, Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific, even some of them are trying to see beyond that in Africa, for example. How this related to our uh, recent uh, political dynamics, especially uh, the presidential election. So it's, it's really uh, concerned the big business because big business will surely influence our next five years of government because of the influence in political party, the influence in uh, 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 you know, uh, team, presidential candidate team. So uh, if you ask whether big companies will affect or whether the politics will affect the internationalization, they, they both affecting each other because internationalization of capital, it's going to happen and it will grow into a bigger transaction and they will need the government to help the expansion because their expansion will not being guaranteed if being not supported by the government. That's why big companies hugely invested in this presidential election. Recently, I met with one of the uh, he's one of the commissioner of the you know one of the big companies in a mining sector. I asked a simple and you know it's like a simple question: uh, How do you see the you know the presidential election? Are you worried uh, with the, the three candidates? And he frankly said that we are going to support the three of them because either one of them surely will going to be the next innocent president. So if they not support each of them, it's, it's going to have a problem to their business. So this is the way how business really concerned and invested into the presidential uh, uh, election because uh, the outcome of the election will surely affect directly or indirectly the expansion of Indonesian capitalist classes into different countries. Thank you to Dr. Faris Al-Fadhat, our senior lecturer at UMYE and vice rector for students and alumni. You can find Faris's new book, Expansi Capital, in your local gram media. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight, but you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Jackie Baker. Bye.